You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Gracious God, we pray that you might give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your word, written for us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, I think it was about three years ago that our launch team would meet uh, in my parents' house in Kew. And across the road from my parents' house is a cemetery. And while we were in lockdown last year, I'd often take a walk through the cemetery. It sounds a bit morbid, but it's actually a great thing to do very peaceful and quiet. In fact, there are a few better places to make a big life decision than uh, walking through a cemetery with your Bible open. I can highly recommend it. It's a great thing to do. Now, what's really interesting is, as I walked through that cemetery, I would read the words engraved on tombstones, epitaphs, words in honour of the dead, for God and country, a true fighter To the end, here lies Dobby, a free elf. He's not buried across the road from my parents' house. It's fascinating though, isn't it, right? A whole life summed up in just a few words. Well, let me ask, what would you like to be written on your tombstone? What one phrase would you want to sum up your entire life? Sixteen weeks ago, we started our series in Genesis 12 to 25, and we met a man named Abraham. And God, if you remember, came to this one man and made to him the most significant promise in the world. I will give you a new life, a new home, and a new love. A a, a people who will fill this whole world. A, A land in which you can rest forever and a relationship of eternal blessing with me, God Almighty. And through your family, I will bless the nations and restore this whole world to everything I created it to be. Can you see, Abraham, you, you will be the agent of my redemption of the entire world. That's the promise that God made all the way back in Genesis 12. The promise of a new beginning. And then, for the next 13 chapters, we walked with Abraham as he sought to live by that promise, as he sought to live out that promise. So, just like the start of any good Netflix series, we're going to recap. And can I tell you, this will be the recap of all recaps. So, previously, in God of Our Fathers. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that new beginning. But immediately, Abraham, he feared the famine and the Pharaoh. He fled the promised land and he lied about his wife. He chose fear over faith. But then Genesis 13, thank God Abraham did what was right. You see, Lot, he was looking for fortune and so he chose the prosperous land. But Abraham looked with faith and he chose the promised land. It gets better. Genesis 14, Abraham grows even more in his faith. He seeks refuge in God's promise to protect his people from the kings of the east. But then, in Genesis 15, Abraham is afraid. You see, Sarah, his wife, is barren. God has not yet given them a child. So God does what God always does. He comes. 
He reaffirms his promise. He seals that promise on his own life. And yet, in Genesis 16, Sarah still could not wait on God. She seized control of her life. She gave Abraham her servant Hagar, who bore him a son Ishmael outside of God's covenant. And yet, despite their faithlessness, God remained faithful. In Genesis 17, what did he do? He confirmed his covenant yet again. But this time, he gave them a sign. Circumcision, the proof of his promise. But still, Abraham and Sarah simply could not trust the Lord. You see, they were well beyond the age of childbearing. And in Genesis 18, what does Sarah do? She laughs in disbelief that God could ever provide her with a child. Then came Genesis 19, where God destroyed Sodom for its sin, but he saved Lot out of judgment on account of his promise. Just pause there for a moment. Do you realize that every time God confirms his covenant, Abraham acts in fear? But every time Abraham acts in fear, God confirms his covenant. It's actually quite beautiful when you think about it. Now, at that point, you'll stop and go, well, Abraham has seen it all. He's experienced everything. He's seen the blessings of faithfulness, the curses of faithlessness. Surely now he will trust the Lord. But in Genesis 20, it all comes crashing down, doesn't it? We remember, we realize that Abraham, he's actually been holding out on God this whole time. Instead of fully trusting his God, his God he's been living in fear wherever he's lived, wherever he went. At that point, if I were God, I would just pull the plug. The whole Bible, Genesis 1 to Genesis 20, that's it. But, yet again, in spite of Abraham's lifetime of faithlessness, God kept his promise. You see, what God promised, God always provides. In Genesis 21, Sarah finally gave birth to Isaac. And from that moment, can I tell you, everything changed. Abraham no longer lived in fear, but now he lived by faith. In Genesis 22, God tested that faith, didn't he? He called him to sacrifice his only beloved son. And finally, instead of fearing the world like he always had, Abraham feared the Lord like he always should have. He did not withhold his only son. And God gave Isaac back to him, as it were. In Genesis 23, Sarah died. And Abraham buried her, of all places, in Canaan, the land of promise. He buried his wife, trusting that God's promises would go beyond the grave. In Genesis 24, Abraham then sought out a wife for his son. He insisted that she must be a woman of faith. She must preserve God's people and promote God's promise. You see, the first part of his life may have been a train wreck. But in his older years, Abraham's faith went from strength to strength to strength. And now, it's as if we farewell an old friend. Abraham nears his death. And as we look back on his life, a life filled with fear, and let's face it, struggling in faith, we might wonder, what might his epitaph read? 
How might we sum up his entire life in a few short words? If I was walking through the field of Ephron and I stumbled across Abraham's grave, these are the words that I would read. Abraham lived in blessing, died in faith. Lived in blessing, died in faith. You know, it's been said that to have many children is to live a blessed life. Now, maybe not so much these days. These days, most families are trying to limit the number of kids we have, right? We want to maintain the lifestyle that we want. We see kids less as a blessing and more of a burden. But until recently, having a large family with lots of kids was considered a great blessing of God. It meant the survival of your family, the prosperity of your household. And by that measure, can I tell you, Abraham lived in a lot of blessing. Now, let me ask the married couples here, please don't shout out your answer. If one of you were to die, perish the thought, if one of you were to die, would the other spouse be free to remarry? Don't look at each other. I see a few nervous looks around the hall. I have had a number of people say to me, generally the wives tell me, Adam, you don't understand They can't look after themselves. Now, whatever your arrangement might be, right? In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul writes that a widow is free to remarry, but only in the Lord. And that's what Abraham does. This passage, this chapter surprises people. They're like, what? Abraham had another wife? You see, after Sarah dies, Abraham takes a second wife, Keturah. And just notice the sheer number of children she bears. Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And from there, Abraham is blessed with at least seven grandchildren. And then great-grandchildren that form entire nations, the Asherim, the Letushim, and the Lilmim. And all these are descendants of Keturah, Abraham's second wife. Now, we don't know much about these descendants, but we do know this much. All of them sit outside God's covenant people. They all sit outside God's people of promise. Let me put it this way. You see, God had provided Isaac as the child to preserve his promise. Isaac, in one sense, is what we might call God's covenanted blessing. A blessing promised by God. But the children of Keturah are, um, are what we might call God's uncovenanted blessings. Blessings never promised but still provided out of the generosity of God's heart. Now, I know that some of us here in our church family have recently secured a full-time job. If that's you, big congratulations. Welcome to the next 50 years of your life. Now, under your contract that you'll sign shortly, your employer will promise to, I don't know, pay you a salary, give you four weeks annual leave, and contribute 9.5% of superannuation. Those benefits are benefits that they legally promise to provide. And when you get that contract, you're not exactly going to consider your employer particularly generous for providing you with what they already promise, are you? They've promised it. It's what they've contracted or covenanted to do. But imagine now that your employer goes above and beyond what they legally promise. They pay for the daily coffee run. They buy you a bottle of champagne each year and they invite you to their annual Christmas party, which you have to go to. 
You see, those are benefits that your employer, he's never promised to provide. He's not expected to extend, and yet he gives them all the same. He's generous in giving you what we might call uncontracted or uncovenanted blessings. That is what God is giving to Abraham. Blessings above and beyond what he has already promised to provide. Blessings which Abraham cannot demand, he cannot claim, and he cannot expect. And yet God freely gives them all. Because that's just the sort of God he is. He's generous, extravagant, boundless in his blessings, overflowing in his love. I wonder, do you see God as a generous God? Just think about all the blessings He's given us. In Ephesians 1, what has God given us? He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Just think about adoption as His children, redemption by His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, an inheritance of our salvation, and a seal of the Holy Spirit. They're they're all the blessings that God has promise to give us. And they're the blessings that you and I can claim. They're the blessings that we can expect. And in one sense, they're even the blessings that we can demand in Christ if we're in Him. You see, they're God's covenant at blessings, blessings sealed by promise. But if you look at your life for a moment, you've got to recognize, don't you, God, in His generosity, doesn't stop there. Just think about all the uncovenanted blessings we enjoy. The blessing of living in a safe and secure country, of housing, of work and money, of family and friends, marriage and children, on a cold day like today, of mac packs and puffer jackets. I mean, they're just uncovenanted blessings above and beyond. God never promised to give us a job a spouse, a child, or a house. No, He promised to give us His Son. And yet, and yet, He has given us His Son and so many of these other blessings as well. You know, some of us, I think, may easily assume that these gifts of creation, as it were, they simply don't matter. We recognize the priority of our spiritual blessings, but the truth is, we scorch the earth, don't we? The way we say these are important is we say nothing else is important. We actually fail to acknowledge all of God's other blessings. You know, the best response to receiving a gift is to thank the giver and enjoy the gift. How often do you thank God and enjoy His uncovenanted blessings of family and friends? Work and rest, food and shelter. Just two days ago, I received the uncovenanted blessings of a nine-week-old kitten now named Carson. Uh, God never promised him, but God provided him. And he is the cutest cat in the world, and I will not hear another word against it. You see, friends, there is so much that God provides. And we are called to thank God for these gifts. How could you not? But there is a right way to enjoy them. There is a right way to enjoy them. And that is to enjoy them secondary to the covenanted blessings of God. You see, we enjoy creation best when we enjoy our salvation most. And that's exactly what Abraham does in verse 5. 
Just notice, he, he gives everything he owns to Isaac. But he gives to the sons of his concubines, Hagar and Keturah, gifts. And then what does he do? He sends them away. Away from Isaac and away from promise. Do you see what he's doing? He, he's giving gifts to his uncovenanted children, but his inheritance to his covenanted son. He, he prioritizes God's covenant people. God's covenant promise, God's covenant blessings, and so should we. You know, the truth is that if some of us are at risk of undervaluing God's uncovenanted blessings, I suspect that far more of us totally overvalue them. We enjoy God's uncovenanted blessings, but as if they were the greatest blessings of all. If we're honest, we enjoy God's creation far more than we enjoy His salvation. Just think about how we value our money. We spend days, weeks, and even years investing our wealth and growing our pie. But in comparison, how much do we value our spiritual blessings? Do we have a similar investment plan to deepen and enrich the blessings that we have in Jesus? In 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes that God richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Isn't that beautiful? But we should store up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the coming age. Can you hear what Paul is saying? Enjoy your material wealth today, but invest in your spiritual wealth for eternity. Appreciate and enjoy your life in the present age, but live your life for the age to come. Enjoy God's uncovenanted blessings of creation, but prioritize His covenanted blessings of redemption. The reality is, so many of us get it the wrong way around, don't we? We look at our spiritual blessings, we look at our salvation, we look at our adoption, and we go, oh yeah, that's nice. But if we had to choose, I suspect that far more of us would choose blessings of wealth, marriage, and career success. We're disappointed when we realize what God doesn't promise. Then we read Ephesians 1 in all of its glory and we think, I guess that's all right. We have all the plans to invest our material wealth, but none to share our spiritual riches. Friends, Abraham is an example of a man who lived in blessing. He appreciated all the gifts that God never promised, but still provided. And he never allowed them to replace what matters most. God's covenanted blessings. His blessings sealed by promise. His blessings kept in Jesus. I just love, I absolutely love, how Genesis describes Abraham's life in verse 8. Just read it there. He took his last breath and died at a good old age. Old and contented, and he was gathered to his people. I mean, it's quite moving, isn't it? Not to be a bit morbid, but when my day comes, I wouldn't mind. I mean, that's pretty good, right? I want my death to be described in that way. And actually, when you look at the New Testament, we see the very same evaluation of Abraham's life. Look with me at Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. 
He, Abraham, considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. I mean, think about it, right? Genesis and Hebrews may as well say, here lies Abraham, a hero who died in faith. It's pretty good. Put that on my tombstone, right? But, I don't know if you're thinking what I'm thinking. How in the world is that a fair summary of Abraham's life? I mean, you've got to be kidding me. What about all the times he was fearful and faithless? What about the time he fled to Egypt just moments after receiving God's promise? What about the time where he laughed in disbelief because, God, because he thought God wouldn't keep his promise? Gets worse. What about the time he slept with Hagar whilst he couldn't wait on God? What about all the times he lied about Sarah being his wife because he didn't fear God? No, 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 no. If I had to write the summary of Abraham's life, it wouldn't be, here lies a hero of faith. It's, here lies a hero of fear. Here lies an absolute failure. So why in the world does Genesis 25 and Hebrews 11 describe his life so positively? Why in the world do they say, a man who clearly lived in fear now is valorized as a man who dies in faith? Any ideas? I thank God that however we might begin and however we might continue, there is hope in how we finish. You see, Abraham might have lived his whole life in fear, but in the end, he dies in faith. He dies, verse 8 says, contented, thankful for the promises of God. And I don't know about you, but I find that a remarkable encouragement. Because I struggle to live by faith every day. Every day of my life, I am prone to live by fear. But however often my heart may be gripped by fear, there is hope in how we finish. However badly we might begin, however poorly we might continue, all of us, all of us can finish well. There's something to be said about being patient with our sanctification, isn't there? I often get frustrated. As I've told you many times, patience is not my natural strong suit. And I often get frustrated at sins that haven't died yesterday, right? But sanctification is a lifetime of growing faith in God's promises. It won't happen yesterday, and it probably won't happen tomorrow either. It takes a lifetime of faith, a lifetime of growing in faith. And in the end, Abraham dies in a faith stronger and surer than ever before. But did you notice, at the end of his life, how much of God's covenant blessings has he actually received? What part of God's world-changing promises Abraham actually have when he dies? I mean, just think about it, right? He doesn't have any people, let alone a nation. He only has Isaac, the only child of promise. And far from possessing the entire land, he is nothing more than a cave where he's buried his wife. No, the truth is, Abraham dies never seeing the fruit of God's promise. It's quite a jarring passage, because when you read it, it sounds so positive. But in reality, if you were there at Abraham's death, 
you would feel sorry for him. The truth is, I, I, I really find it hard to visit an aged care home. I did it, um, as some of you know, pretty much every day for three years to visit my grandmother when she was passing away. And it's, it's a tough place to go. It is a tough place to go. Because you see people who once lived like, well, many of us live now. People who once had it all. All their health, all their wealth and all their families. And now you look at them, their money is spent. Their health is lost and for some, even their families are gone. And it's heartbreaking because you look at people who look like, who look like they die with next to nothing. Now I wonder if Abraham's death may actually have looked a bit like that. He who has promised everything now dies with almost nothing. And yet, in verse 8, somehow, in some way, Abraham dies contented. Contented. I mean, how in the world could a man who dies with nothing die contented? And it's because he knows what he really has. He trusts God's promises in life and in death. He, he believes that God will continue His covenant. He, he will preserve His promises. He will extend His blessings to Isaac and beyond. You see, Abraham says, I can now die with next to nothing because I know that God has promised me everything. In Hebrews 13, we read, Abraham and Sarah died in faith. There it is. They died in faith, although they had not received the things that they were promised. But they saw them from a distance. They, they greeted them and, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. And I love this line, they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Do you realize what Hebrews is saying? As he dies, Abraham is not just looking forward to God's promises on earth. He's looking forward to God's promises in heaven. He's expecting to enter the promised land, not just of Canaan, but a new creation. He's anticipating that God will keep his promises, not just temporarily in Isaac, but eternally in Jesus. I'll tell you what, that's why he can die in faith. That's why he can die old and contented. That's why he can die with next to none of God's promises fulfilled. Because he knows that God will give him a better people, a better land, and a better blessing. All in Jesus. When we die in faith, we can embrace the loss of wealth, health, and family. All because we have a greater hope. When my grandmother was passing away, it naturally, you know, families... When, when there's a death in the family, it always causes family friction, right? It's pretty normal. And I remember one of my um, relatives was so insistent about calling in a faith healer. He said, she can get better. She can get better. My, my mum made funny comments. She goes, well, look, she can't walk or talk. I mean, I'm like falling short of an almost resurrection a minor healing is not going to do much. But my dad asked, why are you so afraid of death? 
Why are you so afraid of death? You see, friends, we Christians, we can physically waste away in a nursing home with our health lost, our wealth spent, and our family forgotten. And yet it can still be said of us. He died, old and contented. She died, old and contented. Brothers and sisters, Christians are people who know how to die well. Because God's eternal promises are the difference between dying in fear and dying in faith. Friends, if Abraham can die in faith, can I tell you, we as Christians can do the same with even more confidence. Abraham, just think about it, right? He was looking forward to a land he could not see. He was trusting that what God promised, God will one day provide. And his proof, well, it was nothing more than a small plot of land, a tomb. But as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, can I tell you, we don't stand where Abraham stood. No, the promises that God made to Abraham, he kept in Jesus. You see, we don't look forward to a land that we cannot see. No, we look back to the cross on which Jesus died. And there, we can trust that what God promised, God has provided Our proof is not Abraham and Sarah's tomb. No, our proof is the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Abraham could die in such great faith, then brothers and sisters, we have all the more reason and all the more confidence to die in all the more faith. But it gets even better than that. Because we're not just looking back to the cross. No, we're looking forward to eternity. It's the great difference between Abraham and us, right? Abraham, he can only look in one direction. He looks forward, but not us. We look back to the cross so that we might then look forward to eternity. We look back to where God kept his promise in Jesus so that we might look forward to the day on which he will fulfill it in our world. See, this is what we do. We begin by looking all the way back to when God promised Abraham a new home. A land where he would rest with God forever. We then take the next step and look back to when God kept that promise in Jesus. The the one place, the one person where we can find eternal rest for our souls. And then finally, we look forward. We look forward to the day on which God will fulfill that very promise. When he will bring in a new world. A place of perfect rest. Where sickness and sin Death and disease will be no more. I can't wait for that day. Because it means that all who have gone ahead of us, all believers who have died in faith before us, we will see them face to face. And we will see our God face to face. If you want a picture of what that future looks like, don't look forward. Look back. See, we look back to the cross so we can look forward to eternity. We look back in faith so we can look forward in hope. And that hope is as living, tangible, and real as the person of Jesus who physically died and rose bodily from the grave. It's as real as flesh and blood. 
If you're not a Christian, let me ask you, are you afraid of dying? Do you fear death? I suspect it's as good a question for us believers as it is for those who are not Christians. You know, many people are afraid of dying because the truth is we have no hope of what might lie beyond it. You see, if you think that death is the end of the road, then the truth is, I think, be very afraid. Unless, of course, you're like Abraham. Unless you have the promise of eternal life, the promise of an eternal home, the promise of an eternal love that will extend beyond death itself, be very afraid unless you trust in Jesus, the one person who guaranteed that eternal promise by defeating death itself and rising to new life. Now, if you believe in Him, then, surely then, you would never fear death at all. You'd be able to mourn death. You would grieve death. You would cry over death. But not as one without hope. Because you would have a deep and abiding trust that the new life God promised Abraham, God kept in Jesus and will fulfill for us and all those who love him. You see, friends, Jesus came. He physically died and bodily rose from the dead so that you and I might be free from the fear of death. We Christians can die in faith and die without fear. Last week, I introduced you to the great missionary to Burma, Adnarum Judson. And I showed you a letter that he wrote uh, to his girlfriend's father asking for his permission to marry his daughter. This week, I want to take you to a moment where he confronted death. And this is a story I've told before, but I don't care. I never get tired of telling it. Just imagine, there he is, and Naram Judson tied to a pole, trapped and about to die. The tribal chieftain looks him in the eyes, and before he deals a fatal blow, asks the missionary, Mr. Judson, what future do you now see? And the missionary, tied to the pole, with his life on the line, looks his captor eye to eye and speaks these words. The future is as bright as the promises of God. The future is as bright as the promises of God. Now, that's a great line, isn't it? Even better when you're about to die. Friends, Abraham died believing that promise. Jesus died to secure that promise. And one day, all of us who love the Lord Jesus, we can die with faith in that promise. So may those words be written on our hearts. And mark this day, should I suffer a premature and untimely death, may those words be inscribed on my tombstone. The future is as bright as the promises of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word to us. And we praise you, God, for the life of Abraham, one who is weak, fearful, and faithless, just like we are. And as we confront our mortality, 
and look death face to face. Remind us, God, that death is not the last face we will see, but we will see you. We will see your Son face to face and all those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Teach us, Heavenly Father, to live in blessing, to die in faith, confident in the God who will change this world and renew this world forever. For Jesus' sake. Amen.